Thank you, Tony. Thank you, worship team. It almost feels like afternoon, thanks to that glorious hour of extra rest we got this morning. How awesome was that? Why do we not do that every week? If I, I, I had the thought if I ever run into run for office, and don't worry, I do not. But if I did, that would be my entire platform. I will bring fall back, Saturday, fall back fall to every Saturday of the calendar year, and I'm pretty sure I'd win. Oh man, that felt great. Well, um, my name is Kenan Vaughn. If I don't know you, one of the pastors and elders here at Harvest, and privilege of preaching God's word this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians, continuing our series. If you want to head that direction, Ephesians chapter four. Uh, we'll be in verse one momentarily. This is a great spot <clears throat> uh, in the in the letter that Paul writes. Of course, carried along by the Holy Spirit, so that God writes to His church and. We see through it some incredible application as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in the first century. And this point we come in this morning is the pivot point of the whole book, pivot point of the whole letter. Uh, It's not just because three chapters are in the rearview mirror and, and three looking forward, but it's the moment when Paul really shifts from this high theology of our salvation, of who God is, of who we are, and of who we are in Christ, and what salvation looks like. And we've really done nothing but for three chapters, but marvel at the gospel. I mean, Paul uses run-on sentences in the Greek that we try to translate in English, which just leave us uh, aghast at the glory of the gospel. Three chapters we've reveled, and then now we turn the page in chapters four through six, he's going to tell us how we live in light of who we are. I told you the themes of, of Ephesians at the beginning of the book were identity, who we are in Christ, that's prevalent chapters one through three. And there was an overlap that began in chapter 2 of unity, and that'll run really through chapter 4. So we're heavy into the practical application of unity this morning. And it begins to overlap with maturity in 4 and 5 and 6, and then 6 is all about warfare. So identity, unity, maturity, and warfare. And so far there's not been a single command in the book of Ephesians. A lot of people say, chapter 1 through, that's my favorite book right there. Don't have to do anything. Just read, look longingly, and revel. Well, here's the thing, and if it's your first Sunday at Harvest, this would be a little bit of a, of a, you, you'd miss the entire bearing of the context. You'd miss the whole weight of this passage because we're meant to be so overwhelmed with God's goodness and salvation that we are, we are hearts aflame for Christ. We are longing to serve Him. Our, our affections are stirred, and we're kind of we're going, hey, how do we respond to the love of God in Christ? What do we do with the great salvation we've been given? And so you want chapter four. You want four, five, and six. You want to know, how how do I live in light of the gift of salvation I've been given in Christ? And so chapter four is a natural application of one through three. And so with that being said, we'll begin the command section. 35 commands coming at you. Not all this morning, don't worry. But we'll get the ball rolling. So if you could stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, chapter four, Verses 1 through 6, the word of God reads this way. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of God for the people of God and the people of God said. 
Praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, I pray that you would speak oh, through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd speak to us this morning. We need this word. The church in Ephesus needed this word. We need this word. As your people, as your church, God, I pray that we would receive this word in the full weight and glory of it. That it would, that our minds would not wander over the next half hour. That we would oh, be keenly uh, interrupted where necessary from distracted thoughts. That we would be challenged. That we would be pushed towards the pursuit of a oneness in the body of Christ that would honor you and that would bring glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. If you look at that previous verse leading in, 21, that's the, the roll-in we have. Before I tell you that, let me give you a, a Peanuts comic strip, okay? Y'all know the Peanuts? Well, every once in a while this one pops up. It's one of my favorites, Lucy. Um, you know, she's a little bossy. And she, she enters the room and, and Linus is, is watching TV. And she demands that he change the channel. And he says, what gives you the right to come in here and tell me what to do like that? And Lucy said, these five fingers right here. Left to themselves, they're nothing. But when I bring them together as one, they wield a weapon that is terrible to behold. And Linus says, what channel do you want to watch? And then, and then the best is, it shows him walking away in the last scene, and he, and he looks at this hand, and he goes, why can't you guys ever get organized like that? <laughs> and that's, that's the church. We're not meant to be a bunch of individuals out there doing our thing. We're meant to be one power that is something for this world to behold. Literally, Jesus puts the credibility of the power of the gospel on the oneness of the church. That's just a massive statement. That's a massive biblical truth that our oneness displays to the world the truth and the power of the gospel. Just wanna say it one more time. Our oneness displays to the world the truth and power of the gospel. We don't have that, we don't have any credibility. Our words just fall weak on fallow ground. It was not the testimony of the church in Ephesus that turned the Roman Empire upside down. It was the oneness of the church in Ephesus that gave their testimony weight that turned the Roman Empire upside down. Are you with me? Now, this passage, we've been talking about unity. We've had a running start, but it's been the theology of our unity. It's been that Christ died to reconcile us to God and to one another. It's been a cross-shaped gospel. There's been dividing walls of hostility that have been torn down by the blood of Christ. There was a horizontal wall separating us from God, torn down by the blood of Christ. We're made right, we're reconciled. He who had no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. But that's not the full extent. There's vertical walls that divide us from our fellow man, torn down. The reason Paul's in prison right now as he writes this letter is because he's preaching the whole gospel, that you've been made one, you've been reconciled to God, and you've been made one with one another, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, rich, poor, doesn't matter. 
Auburn fan, Alabama fan, I'll go ahead and say it. You are one in Christ. Now, Paul's going to be locked up because of that. The Jews don't want to hear it. And Paul says, the dividing walls are torn down. The theology of chapters 2 and 3 says, hey, anyone that was far off, which is anyone that wasn't saved, has been brought near by the blood of Christ. You might have been a stranger, an alien to the covenants of the promise that were given Israel. Now you're, a fa- now you're family. Now you're members and partakers of those very covenants in the blood of Christ. He's saying, you've been made one. He'll say it seven times in this text. One, 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 seven times. Christ, when he saved you, if indeed you're saved, he, by the power of his Holy Spirit, baptizes you individually into the body of believers, which is his own body, the body of Christ. So he forges you into one body. You're one. He made you one. Your job is not to create oneness. It's to preserve oneness. It's to fight with your dying breath to be one. Because he says in John 17, that's how the world knows that the Father has sent me. And so this is a really big deal to Jesus. It's a really big deal to the Holy Spirit who carries Paul along in this. And it's a really relevant message today. It's a hard one. This is, a, this is one of our first practical applications of the high theology of chapters one through three. But it's critical. We get into the weeds. How do we actually live out the gospel? That's the question on the table now. And it's just interesting to me that Paul doesn't begin chapter four with telling us about how to have good quiet times. He doesn't begin with something as essential as prayer. He doesn't begin with missions. It's just interesting to me that when he turns the corner, the pivot verse of the whole book, and says, this is who you are, this is who you are, this is who you are. Now let me tell you how you live out your faith. He starts point number one, command number one, you gotta figure out how to get along. You gotta, you gotta carry out this oneness so that the world doesn't scoff at the witness, so that the church is a powerful force against which even the gates of Hades cannot stand. You gotta be one. That's where he starts, which gives you the preeminence, which gives you the importance of this command. Okay, so chapter four, verse one. By the way, I started to say a second ago, the last verse, every single message so far in this series has started with a therefore or a for this reason. (laughs) So we're always coming in in the middle of something. What we're in the middle of now is he has said, to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. To God be glory. The church is meant to glorify God. And in Christ Jesus, him and us, his body, throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. The very glory of God in the church is at stake. Therefore, so, so that's, that's what we're coming in on. For the sake, if, if I had titled this message, I would have said, for the glory of God in the church. I therefore, Paul writes, a prisoner for the Lord. Okay, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. He's, 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 it's not just uh, you know, a, a metaphor. He is a prisoner. He's in house arrest presently, but my goodness, he's been through all kind of, he's been four years in jail cells so far. Literally a prisoner for this very message, the ramifications of the gospel. 
There's the power of God to save first the Jew, then the Gentile, and to baptize us by his spirit into one body with one, through one faith and one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, one God. And the Jews won't have it, and he's imprisoned. Now, it's one thing if somebody encourages you to be a, a, a great uh, citizen and patriot for our country. That's one thing. It's a good thing. It's another thing if the person encouraging you towards that end is missing a limb from their service in combat to our country. Well, then it has a little, a little, a little more punch. Paul bears the brands of Christ. He's imprisoned. And he's exhorting you to do that for which he's lost a limb for, so to say. Uh, five times, 39 lash, lashes minus one. Uh, endured every persecution virtually imaginable. Eventually, soon, will be beheaded. Won't flinch. And he's the one saying, listen, listen, church. Where our gospel witness starts is with Unity. Not at the expense of truth. Jesus says in John 17, sanctify them in truth. Sanctify them by your word. But around the word of God, we got to be able to be one. Okay, well, I, Paul, a prisoner. And by the way, he, just got to say this real quick. He's not the, it's not just Paul that's a prisoner for the Lord. Can you, can you be a Christian and not be a prisoner for the Lord? Would you think of that, that with me just for a second? What does it mean to be a Christian? Trust on Christ. To receive Christ as Savior, Lord, King. I don't, I don't know how to be a Christian to sincerely trust on him to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him without being a prisoner for the Lord. That's Paul's high calling. It's also ours. And he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you. He said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. The calling in which you've been called. You've been called out of darkness into his glorious light. You've been called. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, chapter 2. And you've been, but God, he intervened, made alive in Christ. You were dead and now alive. You were doomed and now redeemed. You've been called to know God and walk with him and become like him in his suffering and in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. You've been called to leave the fruitless deeds of darkness and step into the marvelous light of his glory and grace. You've been called to leave the, the futile thinking of worldly living and embrace the weighty glory of heavenly citizenship. Like, that's our calling. I, 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 uh, I, I can't do justice to the, the, the calling is, is everything. That, that, that He literally took us out of the miry muck. He, he came in and he adopted us off the backside of the hill. He rescued us from darkness, from the domain of darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's everything. There's a before Christ and an after. There's a I was dead and I'm alive. And Paul's saying that's more than just why you go to church. He's saying there is a manner in which you now live because you've been redeemed. There's a, there's a changed life. There's got to be an integrity between this message of the gospel and its transformative power on a life. You look different. You think different. You will act different. And the difference starts with this. Because you and I are going, well, okay, what would it look like, Paul, to live a life worthy of the 
glory of the calling of Christ, that there was an interruption and there, there was a but God moment that he did save us out of our spiritual deadness, the trespass and sins in which we once walked and followed the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now working, those who are disobedient. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, that's what he's gonna tell us this morning. Verse two, <clears throat> starts with all humility. Okay, uh, I, I'll admit I don't like the word all. Humility is hard enough. All humility, wow, all, that word pos in the Greek means extreme, it means utter, and it means complete. Anybody arrived on this one yet? I'm just curious, because I need to hang out with you and learn. Utter, complete, always humility. Now, again, Paul begins his entire exhortation to this church in Ephesus. This, this body of the redeemed. He gives them three chapters of the glory of the gospel, what Christ has done. I mean, he's worshiping, we're worshiping. And he says, now listen, that ought to produce in us to start utter humility. What boast do you have as a member of the church of Jesus Christ by virtue of his weighty calling on your life, his finished work on your behalf, his taking the wage of sin that is death and paying it on. What boast do you have apart from him? That's where he starts. We have no boast. We don't boast in what we know. First Corinthians 8 gives a warning. Knowledge puffs up, be careful. We don't, you don't, that doesn't mean we don't pursue knowledge. We don't put our self-worth or our self-righteousness in our knowledge. Not what we know, not what we do. We boast only in who we know and what he has done on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 1, we have no boast but Christ. The, the idea of an arrogant Christian or a self-righteous Christian ought to be the greatest oxymoron that the world has ever known. I don't know that it is, but it ought to be. How do you have an arrogant Christian, a Christian, one who has come to the end of themselves, recognized their spiritual bankruptcy before God, been illumined to Christ and embraced him? Living now for the will of the Father and the glory of the Son. How is that person arrogant? What do they have to boast in? They've relinquished everything they may otherwise boast in to glory in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, in the church, there ought to be an utter humility. Utter humility. It's not some kind of self-defamation. It's not thinking worse of you. I mean, it's not degrading. Your, it's to have a right view of yourself before God. That's what it is. Uh, trust me, it's convicting to preach on humility, okay? Not, not coming to you as one who's just finally last year mastered this. This is tough. Uh, but I know how, I know what it is when I see it, Right? Isn't it the most beautiful character trait when you see in someone humility? By the way, I had a really up-close personal view of humility in a, a, one of my granddads I've told you about. Um, not my no general ranch stories I give you, but my mother's side grandfather, um, a great Jewish man in our community. We called him Mickey. His name was Milton. We called him Mickey. Granddaddy Mickey. And uh, I didn't, uh, growing up, you know, when you're five, when you're eight, when you're ten, 
I knew there was something extremely distinct about my grandfather, extremely special. I just didn't quite understand it. I just knew he was altogether different. I knew there was a spirit of peace around him. I knew there was never such thing as a harsh word in his marriage, in his home. Um, I, just, there was, I just didn't know anyone like him. And as I got older, got into high school, began to recognize that, that uh, and what was really cool about this was I'd go spend the night with him. I'd uh, hang out with him. I began to do life with him as I got older. And I realized it wasn't just a facade. It wasn't just like the public image. It was the private man. That there was an unbelievable surrender that had taken place somewhere in his life where he had, uh, he was no longer impressed with himself. He was no longer into his own image. He was no longer after his own power or glory. He, he had just had a death of self somewhere along the way that produced the most beautiful thing. I've never seen a marriage. I've never seen one like Mickey and my grandmother, we called her Mama Doll. Never seen one. Listen to me, if you're married, you'll appreciate this. There was never a harsh word spoken there. By the way, I asked, I've asked my mother many times, hey mom, you grew up in that house. Like for real? And she'd say, never heard one. I asked my grandmom who he was married to, has Mickey ever been angry with you? And she said, oh, I'm sure he has. I've given him plenty of reason to be. She says, but he's never shown it. Yeah! Very convicting for me, okay? <laughs> but I'll say this about, so, so my grandfather reeked of humility. Now let me say this, so here's what was cool. As I watched and matured and progressed, I noticed something, something I had to learn in life. He never, I noticed he was the president of almost every organization he was a part of. That's not a joke. Uh, in the community, he was president of all, all kind of organizations. Every time he was on the board, they made him the chairman of the board. In his business, he was the president of the I, I, I you know, You don't know those things, he kind of figured it out. And I started watching that his was a mantle of servant leadership. His was a model of humility. I started listening to the way not just his family, not just my grandmother spoke of him, that's where you really get to know the man, but the way those that worked with him, the employees that served under him, the men that served with him. And here's the testimony everybody always would say is, humblest man they've ever known, wisest man they've ever known. You know what the Bible says in uh, Proverbs 11? Humility produces wisdom. And wisdom produces humility. How about that? And when you, are, when you walk humbly and you're therefore wise, here's what happens. And here was the point of my illustration of my granddad. I've met hundreds of people in my life, he's now passed, who come up to me when they hear who I am because I've been in this community three generations, here's what they say, I knew your granddad. Every time they say that, I promise you, 100 out of 100 times, I know exactly what's coming. And I don't have to do this, I don't have to go, oh no. Or, oh, it could go, no. The moment they say it, I just smile. I know exactly what's coming. I know exactly what's coming, am I right? 100 out of 100, they're gonna say this. That man was an unbelievable man, humble, wise, never met one like him. I get it every time. Can I tell you, in my 25 years with him, in my mother's 50 years with him, 
we don't know of a relationship of discord that existed in his life. That's tough. Because humility invites forgiveness. Humility invites vulnerability. Humility invites intimacy. Humility disintegrates bitterness. Humility disintegrates division. Paul says, Church of Jesus Christ, your calling card should be humility. Your calling card. The, the divisiveness of the last 18 months pandemic that's come up around all these social justice issues and pandemic-related issues, all that, it should be completely whitewashed by humility. So where, where it's not shows our immaturity on this. Humility. I asked my boys last night as I was tucking them in, I said, guys, who's, who's the humblest man you know? I couldn't say my granddad. They didn't know him. I said, who's the, and, and one of them said, are we supposed to say you? And I said, uh, be, be nice, but no, uh, I actually want you to be honest. Who would it be? And one of them said, uh, a certain coach at my school. And I know this coach. I thought it was a great one. I said, no, why, what is it about him? He said, because everything he teaches us, he teaches from his failures. I was like, man, that's really good. By the way, that was the, a 12-year-old that's test, testimony. And then he said, uh, my buddy, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Malika, who just retired from 25 years of service. I said, why do you say him? We, we just went to his retirement ceremony on a ship in the Mississippi River, 25 years of service, and every one of his uh, commanding officers and um, those that served under him, they all talked. We had a 30-minute ceremony where they sat there and talked of his great accomplishments and all the different, I mean, his jacket is just decorated with all these awards, and they're telling him all these heroic things he did. And then it's finally his turn to speak. You know what he did? He talked about the mercy of God, the grace of a wife and children who bore with him, and the men who he served with and how much he learned from them. And you're like, 25 years, he won't take a shred of credit. Humility, everyone wants to boast of you, all you wanna do is deflect to the Lord and those around you. Utter humility. His third one was Pastor Ronnie. I said, why him? He says, he just knows so much, but he doesn't boast in what he knows. Now listen, that's a 12-year-old sniffing this stuff out. Can I tell you what? That's what the world's supposed to look at us and smell. It's supposed to be the aroma of Christ. Has there ever been anyone more humble than Jesus, who considered equality with God not something worthy of being grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, becoming obedient to the death, even death on a cross? We'll never go beyond that. But Christ's likeness, the character of Christ, ought to be seen in all humility. I just want to pastorally come in way of application to say, we have not graduated from this. And every one of us in the quietness of our hearts needs to surrender every other boast, let go of every other boast than Christ. And let that be the salve in the wounds that create division in our church. He moves from humility to gentleness. If humility is a posture of the heart, gentleness is the way it manifests itself. That word gentleness is the word meekness. It's a, uh, it's a horse word. Get this. It means to bridle a stallion, which is to say gentleness would be power under control. It's not a pushover. It's power under control. 
I hope you're thinking along lines with me of Jesus before Caiaphas, Jesus before the Sanhedrin, Jesus when he's arrested and could have called on 12 legions of angels to come to his rescue, but no, it's power, ultimate power under sovereign control to the glory of God and his church in all generations. Power under control. Let me ask you this, when you are, uh, by the way, the greatest example would be Jesus on the cross mocked, scoffed, beaten, they're hurling insults at him. Power under control. I don't do well with this one either. But when you are offended, so if you've ever been married, when you're offended by your wife, your husband, someone in the church, brother, sister in Christ, does the stallion come out of the stable? Or, or is he bridled? Do you understand what what this looks like? This is to be willing to be offended. How many times? 70 times seven. It's to over and over again. Again, this is supposed to be Paul's, the first application of the gospel, unity, which comes with all humility and meekness, to bridle the stallion when you're offended, to not return evil for evil, which sometimes is uh, overt. It's, It's to say hurtful things. Uh, is to lash out, is to get big, or it can be passive aggressive. And it can be uh, to allow bitterness to sour and to speak poorly of someone behind their back in way of gossip or slander. And look, every one of us has been guilty of one side or both sides. At some point, Paul says, that right there, the enemy will come against the church sowing seeds of discord. The way that is to be defeated is with all humility and meekness. And stop there, but that's where he starts. Humility, meekness, and then he says, with patience. Whew, patience. I'm not known for being great at patience. Passion, yes, patience, not as much. Patience is tough. Here's what I've learned about patience. It is not something that I can white knuckle my way into can't just be more patient. I got to be more godly. I got to be more surrendered. I got to be more abiding in Christ and him abiding in me. And what happens is patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the more that the Spirit who has taken up full residence in me, the more I'm surrendered to him, the character of Christ will be produced in me and there will be a fruit of patience. So here's the hope that the impatience with which I readily display still will slowly but surely be transformed to the fruit of the Holy Spirit as he becomes more demonstrative through me. So the practice is the practice of surrender. That's a daily practice. Don't make that an annual thing. That's a daily thing and it's a weekly thing. We're gonna take communion at the end of today's service. Let me just tell you this. This is one of the the great applications of communion. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, you've gotta be still and you gotta make sure you're right with God. Don't, don't, Don't just come to the table because everybody else is. Have you really been redeemed by the blood of Christ? We are partaking in the symbols of a body, his body broken, his blood shed for our salvation. Don't do it lightly. And then he says, if there's anything between you, and if you're unreconciled to a brother, to a sister, to your spouse, you bypass the table so that you can get right because that's Christ made us one. If you're broken, this is the reminder that he died for our oneness so that you go and with urgency get that right, be reconciled, then celebrate the reconciliation that comes through Christ by coming to the table next week. 
Communion every week is to be a weekly reminder. It's to be a weekly accountability that we don't get very far out of step before we keep getting centered. All humility, meekness, patience. And then he says, uh, bearing with one another love. The idea is forbearance, that you're, that you're willing to strive with others. You're bearing the burdens of others. Even when they harm you, even when they persist in harming you, when you can't clear something up easily, don't move away from it. The text implies that it'll be tough, that you'll bear up with someone. You'll seek help in that relationship. And he says in verse three, eager. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. By the way, that word eager is the word spadazo, which in Greek has a very aggressive connotation. It is to fight for something. So uh, 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 this really spoke to me the most in this whole passage. These, this posture of our heart towards one another, that we'd be humble with one another, that we'd love unlovable people because guess what? You're one of them too and so am I. We'd love the way God loved us in Christ. We'd bear with folks the way God bears with us in our obstinance. That we'd be the church as in a display of his body, a tangible representation of his love. This is hard. The be eager, the spadazzo is you're going to have to fight for it. Here, here's the fighting analogy. Rocky Four. Okay? We have five boys, so you're probably going to get a lot of Rocky over the next few years. Rocky Four. Rock's got to fight Drago to avenge the, the honor of his fallen best friend, Apollo Creed. Well, he's getting trained by Apollo's old trainer. And that trainer seen firsthand the, the, the power of this foe. And when he's training Rocky in Siberia before the big fight, he tells him, hey, Rock, this fight is not like any other fight you've ever fought. It's not just going to be against him. It's going to be against everything in you that would like to give up. He says, you're going to have to conquer something in here to conquer something out there. He says, it's going to take all your strength, all your power, all your love, everything you've got, you're gonna have to punch and punch and punch till you can't punch no more. And then you have to keep punching. Let me tell you what, our battle is against the spiritual forces of evil. If Satan cannot lay hand on your soul, he, his whole divisive strategy is seeds of division in here among us. Spadazzo is fight in here, your pride, your self-righteousness, your willingness to be easily offended, your impatience, all the fleshly impulses. You're going to have to fight this thing to fight for this thing. And you're going to have to fight and fight till you can't fight and then keep fighting because the old man dies hard. Paul says the power of the gospel is on the unyielding nature of the people of God to die to themselves, take up their cross, and follow Christ. Humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, fight to maintain the unity. Did you see that? It's not to make us one. You and I don't fight for that. Jesus fought for that, and he accomplished it. It's the finished work of Christ. We fight, 
We fight from victory, not for victory, from victory. He says it right here. Look what he says. There's one body. By the way, I don't want to skip that phrase. You fight for it in the bond of peace. That word bond, just make a note, it's the word for ligament or tendon. So my body is, is, a, is the skeletal nature. It's, it's a, these bones that are attached by these ligaments. If you don't have those ligaments, I just am a bag of bones just grinding on each other, wearing each other down, producing pain. That's what we are apart from the ligaments, which is the bond of peace that we're meant to work out and work through our differences in peace. From the, from the standpoint of God has redeemed us, he's made us one. By the way, it says in chapter two, verse 14, he himself is our peace. So in him, for him, through him, he provides the synovial fluid that, that allows the cartilage to rest on the joints that our bones don't grind. From what I told you, you get about 50 years worth of synovial fluid. After that, you get Tylenol. We have Christ as our peace. Ours is not merely a fraternal bond created through Greek affiliation or racial makeup or nationality or common interest or what music we listen to, that's not, that's not our bonds. We're, we're different on every one of those. One commonality in here, one thing that all of us in the church have in common, it's an eternal bond. It's the bond of the blood of Christ. We've been washed by the blood. He's our bond, his peace. And here's what he says, one body, one body of Christ. You and I, there, there's, there's no JV and varsity. There's not a freshman team. You're either in Christ or not. And if you're in, you are a part of one body. And the head doesn't say to the hand, we don't need you. You say that until you lose a hand. Every one in the body, one body, one spirit, it's the same Holy Spirit that drew you to the saving power of Christ and drew me. Same spirit. And the same spirit that baptized us into Christ. One body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. Our hope is that the bonds of Christ will hold us. That he will hold us. That he'll never leave us nor forsake us. That his righteousness is indeed enough. And so that one day when we stand before God and our mouth are shut, he will speak on our behalf. And we will dwell with him eternally before the very presence of God. Rev 22, and all things are made new. And we dwell with God and God dwells with us. That's all of our hope, to be together around the throne forever. We don't, there's not a greater hope or more glorious hope or a different hope. That's our hope, that the gospel is true and it's eternal. And we have one Lord, that's Jesus. There's one name by which men can be saved. There's one faith, it's faith in Christ. It's by grace through faith that we are saved. One baptism. That's to say when the spirit of Christ puts you into the body of Christ, you're baptized. That's the picture of your old self being dead and you're being made alive in Christ. We, when we have a physical baptism on stage, that's a demonstration 
of the spiritual nature of your salvation. One God and Father of all. One God and three persons. Our very unities, look at this. It's the Trinity. One Spirit, one Lord, one God. Unity and diversity. He's over all, he's through all, he's in all. Seven times Paul says, one, 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 one. Christ has made you one. Now you spadazzo, you fight that that oneness is not uh, compromised in any way by the enemy's attacks. You got to fight the inner man to fight for the body so that the credibility of the gospel penetrates a culture and brings forth fruit of redemption. Reap a cheap Chronicles of Narnia. Another hero of mine, a fictional hero, but a hero nonetheless. He says, so long as I can, I will sail east on the Dawn Treader. When she fails me, I will paddle east on my little coracle. And when my coracle sinks, I will swim east with my four paws. He's a mouse. And if when I can swim no longer, I have still not yet reached Aslan's country, heaven, I will sink with my nose to the sunrise. That's the great pursuit of the hope we have in Christ. It's a relentless pursuit. It's the pursuit that's meant to commandeer our lives. Paul says, starts with all humility. Meekness. You know, one of the only times Jesus ever described himself, come to me and you'll find rest, for I am what? I'm lowly, that's humble, and I'm meek. Patience. Love somebody like God has loved you. Forbearance. In the bond of peace, that's how we spadazzo. That's how we make much of what Christ has done in us and for us. When I marry a couple, and I love doing weddings, I say, uh, by the power invested in me, by the state of Tennessee, which really means very little, and by God, which means everything, you're now man and wife. And these two have become one. And they're all excited. They have no idea what they've gotten into yet. They're just, they're kissing. They walk out, everybody's clapping, fun music. There's a, a reception. It's just a nonstop. There's a honeymoon. They just, and then they come back and kind of day one of their new life together. And, you know, one of them squeezes the toothpaste from the top of the tube and one from the bottom of the tube. And just all of a sudden the wheels come off. <laughs> hey, you've been declared one, but now you've got to go live that thing out. Hey, husbands and wives, better start in humility. Better start with patience. You'd better be willing to fight for this thing. It's going to be hard. That's the connotation. And it better happen with you and your husband or you and your wife if it's going to happen in the church. You don't get to do it here if you're not doing it there. I only have dozens of examples on this one. But every time Catherine and I get in an argument, and most of the time I'm, I'm sure that I'm right, I'd like to think that I am. Truth is, it doesn't even matter. I got two options in every single case. I can fight to make my voice heard. 
I can fight to, to make her understand my rightness. And in so doing, I will just push her further and further away. And I might win that argument, and I will lose my wife. And the glory of God in our marriage will be simmered. It'll be muted. Or I can, in the assuredness of my rightness, I can consider myself nothing. I could consider myself, Philippians 2, I can consider the interest of others. Before I could seek, like my granddaddy Mickey, to listen and learn versus to be heard. And in so doing, right or wrong, she can be esteemed and valued and honored. And the result is intimacy. And the result is Christ glorified. Now that's marriage in a nutshell, every day. And that's the church. Less of me, more of him. That's our common commitment because of Christ. The Roman Empire was not overturned because they said Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, matter of fact, the Romans didn't even care. You want to worship Jesus? Fine. Worship him along with these 300 other guys. They said, no, no, no. He's the only God. Well, if you believe that, we're going to throw you in the arena and you're going to be killed. Okay? And over the course of 300 years, the humility, the forbearing nature, the love, the oneness of the body turned the Roman Empire upside down. When Alexander the Great was brought the young man who had offended the decorum of Alexander's great army, and he was brought to him by one of his generals, Alexander looked at him and said, what's your name, young man? The young man said, my name is Alexander. And Alexander's heart softened. He, had, he bore his name. He said, General, what, is, what has he done wrong? And the general said, he fled in battle. And Alexander's brow furrowed and his expression darkened. He said, young man, what did you say your name was? And he said, sir, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great, as the story goes, got down from his horse, which was unusual. And he approached the young soldier and he laid hold of him by his armor and he brought him close and he said what was your name and the boy said it's Alexander sir and Alexander the Great said well you'd better change that name or change your character where divisiveness exists in the body we'd better change our name or we better change our character amen father we're about to be real still about to have leaders come up who are able and willing to pray over us. We're about to listen to your Holy Spirit in a, in a special way to ask that you quicken and convict us where there is any fragmentation, any disunity that without a, without a doubt has come from our pride, our offending or our being offended, and in either, in either instance, allowing that dividing wall to begin to be built back, the one that you destroyed by your blood. May we not erect that wall again. So Father, as we're still, will your Holy Spirit please go to work in our hearts. Convict us, quicken us as much as we need to forego the table this day to practice the oneness that you died to create in us as your people and your children. Let us be obedient to that and let us pursue it with urgency. Let us practice spadazzo. Let us be eager to maintain the unity by the bond of peace. 
Father, where we are free in our conscience and spirit to take communion, we glory in that freedom that you have given, Lord Jesus. May you be glorified in it. May we be your body in a way that overwhelms this community with a powerful testimony because of our oneness. We'd ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.